Never down six. Never down six. Never down. Never. It can be frustrating to be so close so many times and not come away with a win. Uh, I told our team, everyone needs to stay together, keep grinding and working at it. Um, we can't get discouraged. Um, and one thing I know about our guys is we'll fight. You know, we just got to stay focused to the task at hand. Um, again, the team never quits. I think we see that in this football team. It's never quit. Uh, and I know they won't. We'll keep competing. And when things aren't going, quality will serve as well as we grow as a football team. But we got to keep going. transmission finds you well my name is Thelonious 7 and you you were listening to straight no chaser and uh i think it's official now i think we can actually say it we are actually a part of dogs by nature and the sb nation community at large i want to officially give a shout out to easy weave uh, for setting all this stuff up as well as to the other hosts who will join us in our broadcast additionally big town brown 10 and 6 fame is officially my brother for another mother I value that viewpoint and we are still working out some of the fine points and details 
we'll let you know what's going on with the D the defunct DBN network as soon as humanly as possible. But for now, ahead on the Steelers Week edition of Straight No Chaser, we're going to get to the top five players on this Browns defense. And we've heard from player number one. There's no question who that is. Miles Garrett has been so good on this defense that a song has been inspired about him. And an additional player has also inspired a song as well. And it's the second player on the Browns defense unit. And we'll talk about that a little bit later on. And we'll also get to the top five players on offense. As we look at this team in terms of its identity, in terms of its ethos, trying to understand what the opposition must be thinking about when they face us and think about how we're going to attack other teams. Those top five players tell us a lot about who we are. After that, we're also going to talk about the running back situation we're also going to talk about Hugh Jackson as always we're going to praise Dorsey while suffering extreme levels of separation anxiety about one of my favorite football players but now this it's definitely been a roller coaster ride of a season for the Browns fans and uh, Oscillating between different forms of mediocrity, despair, slight mediocrity, hope, despair, despair, and more despair. It's been a rough time. It's been a rough time for those who like the orange and brown. But for me, you know, I have a different perspective being that I'm from such a remote location with respect to this team in the city. For me, I guess as I'm reading kind of the media perspectives, looking at people's viewpoints and opinions, the main thing I think about is the fact that I really would like to urge a sense of patience for the organization, kind of patience for everybody. And we got a couple weeks before the bye. I mean, I don't think that making any type of change is going to really do anything and really quite frankly, some of the things that we're struggling with could kind of be expected. So maybe on a certain level, in a certain way, we should just be urging people to take a step back, take a deep breath, think about this team, think about this with some perspective and not get so, um, not get so bent out of shape about the immediateness of these losses. Cause these losses stink, man. This last loss in Tampa Bay was one of the worst ones I can remember in some time, but it was bad for a different reason than some of the other losses that we've experienced. If you flash back to the Jets game a few weeks ago, I mean, there was definitely a real feeling that something was different in this organization. And it it happened when Baker took the field and it kind of changed the way that the whole team felt. And it felt that way going into Oakland. But, you know, after what happened in Oakland and the subsequent weeks, I mean, even the the win that they experienced against Baltimore, in some ways that even seemed kind of like lackluster and lucky in some ways. Even after the re, the renaissance or the rebirth of this franchise with Baker Mayfield as quarterback, in some ways it seems like we're kind of running into a rookie brick wall as Baker Mayfield sort of adjusts to the league. That makes any sense? 
And it's not just Baker Mayfield. Baker Mayfield's actually walking into a situation that's pretty much um, riddled with with um, strife situ- strife-filled situations and change. Lots of change going on around Baker Mayfield as well. The first area that I would look at with respect to the change going on around him is in the running game. It, the running game is definitely something that when I take a look at it, I think about what happened in the last couple of weeks and the move with Hyde being traded to Jacksonville. And you look at this move on the surface. On the surface, you definitely want to say, uh, you know, you, you want to be a little bit upset with with the team for moving on from Hyde so quickly. In some ways, there's kind of a, a, a feeling or a sentiment that if you have three running backs, you have probably one too many. Three is probably too many people running the football. And, and in Chubb's case, it was too many because I don't think he could get the requisite work that he needed to be a productive back in the league. And he was doing everything that he could to earn carries. But to be honest, to be fair about the running situation in Cleveland, Carlos Hyde is not a bad running back. Carlos Hyde was doing his job exactly the way that the organization expected him to. And I can understand why a back like Chubb would have a difficult time supplanting him in the lineup. But I said as much in previous weeks. But as I look at this situation, specifically with Chubb, I can totally understand why the organization would decide to move on from Carlos Hyde. I mean, just look at the the stats from the game in Oakland and you can see exactly what they're talking about. The guy's averaging over 10 yards a carry on the year. Yet he has so few touches. But, you know... People want to look at these pieces in this running game and look at the offense and the play calling in general. And they want to think that you could just take the piece that's Carlos Hyde and just substitute right in Nick Chubb and have no hiccups, no burps at all. Everything should run smoothly like a cog in a machine. But football teams just don't work like that. They don't work like that. Chubb is going to take some time uh, to grow into the role. Being a feature back in the organization, he's got some practice doing it, of course. But what isn't evident is that the team around him has had the chance to adjust to what Chubb does well. And has enough reps to be doing this on a regular basis. In some ways, I kind of think that Chubb was able to get off a little bit in this game because... Teams were more keyed on what Hyde did well, and Chubb, as kind of a change of pace from what Hyde does, ends up really gashing a lot of teams. But what Hyde does so well is Hyde puts the ball up. The, I mean, Hyde runs the ball between the tackles pretty well, pretty successfully, and he can do it over time for the duration of the game. He has the ability to really smash the ball up into the defense. And that is something that Chubb. Chubb's kind of got to learn how to do this in the same way that Carlos Hyde did it. Carlos Hyde was able to run the football time after time as a traditional workhorse back. And there's no question Chubb has a skill set to do it. I'm just saying that the way Chubb is running is going to be different than the way that the offense is going to be required to block for Hyde. Some of the things that Hyde does 
aren't necessarily going to be the same thing that Chubb is going to do well. And as a as a the team's whole psychology has to change in order to incorporate this new figure into the offense. Chubb is going to take some time, man. He's going to grow into the guy he needs to be. But after one week, you're definitely going to have a situation where you're going to notice the growing pains coming into the space. So the fact that last week against Tampa Bay, the Browns weren't able to utilize Chubb to his highest level of efficiency. To me, I'm going to take a a step back and urge patience with that situation. It's going to take a minute. You could argue that maybe they should have gone with Chubb from the beginning and begun that growing process at the beginning the same way that they did with the left tackle Desmond Harrison. They put the youngster in there at the beginning and then let them grow into the spot. Let him grow into the spot. And the results have been somewhat mixed in some way, but you know by this point what you're looking at when you're game planning with this dude in the position. Chubb, however... Was Chubb maybe even forced on Haley? Did it seem like Haley was content running the ball with Hyde and that somehow, because of the move made by John Dorsey, now the Chubb situation is a little bit different. Is John Dorsey overstepping his place by making this move in the middle of the season? Or is it maybe time to have our fire sale right now? It's an interesting question to ask yourself going into the season. But... I'll tell you this, for as much as um, the differences that Hyde being gone has made in the offense, definitely the play calling is going to be something that's going to have to be adjusted. And this last week, of course, there was the uh, there was a huge issue, the huge hubbub about whether or not Hugh Jackson was going to retain play calling duties. And I don't know, man, for me. I kind of don't think it's about Haley or Jackson necessarily being a better play caller. Or actually, to be honest, I'm not even really sure if Haley is the best play caller of the two of these guys. And I kind of get to this in a second, but I really think that the play calling is been substandard because of all the new pieces that have been assembled on the fly. You really have to be patient for a team like this to come together, especially if you didn't start at the beginning of training camp with the primary pieces in place to build your organization. You got to be patient with what happens here. You got to be patient. But the problem is, of course, this team has a lot of baggage. There have been two years of Hugh Jackson coming into this season with the most abysmal record in the history of records. And they start this year with two wins and seven tries. I mean, they're absolutely better than that record. Two wins and seven tries. I think we can all agree with that. But look at that record. They should have won more games. There is no question about that. They have a, right now they clearly have a franchise-saving quarterback. A young quarterback. But a franchise-saving quarterback. And a defense that's certainly ready to win. And even with this franchising saving quarterback and the defense that's playing out of its head, you don't get the feeling that our old ball coach is going to find a way to win too many games. Because quite frankly, 
over the course of what we've seen him do, he really hasn't done that. But then you got to ask yourself, why hasn't Hugh Jackson been able to win more consistently over time? Well, it's because now he's in a role where in one way he excels and in one way he's being completely cut off at the knees. What do I mean by that? I think Hugh Jackson's a play caller by nature. There's been a lot of debate back and forth as to whether his play calling has been good or bad, historically speaking. But in my opinion, as I watch what Hugh Jackson does, I think being a play caller is what Hugh Jackson is really good at. He's good at play calling. And he's also good at player management. But what he sucks at, and I can speak to this as I'm getting older as well, And he sucks at multitasking. I look at him on the sidelines of games last year. And it really looked to me as if there was too much action going on around him. And just some of the quality of decisions seemed to kind of shake. And I felt like he wanted to project this image of being a strong leader. And so we kind of redoubled down on his statements a little bit in a Trumpian way. Okay, saying, Saying it anyways, even though clearly people at least have questions of some of the things that he's saying. I don't know. Additionally, as far as he's bad at mask multitasking, additionally, he's also bad at playing the Madden style of game management. He's consistently doing things that smart coaches just don't do. And he's routinely banal when all out aggression might be warranted. I mean, I don't blame him for this. In some ways, I get it that this is a situation that you find yourself in. He's definitely better than what he was last year in terms of the multitasking issues that he had. But that Madden sucktitude, I I don't think he's really shaken that yet. But at the same time, I still think that the situation that, that he finds himself in is not entirely his fault. This situation was created by somebody else. It was created by someone who felt it would be a good idea to give you another shot, but under circumstances that were completely bound to fail. And who is this person you may ask? I'm not going to say his name. He sets up a totally new situation where a guy gets to be the figurehead and makes all the choices, but doesn't get to pick the place. And then you wonder why it goes down like this. In this situation in critical places. He's calling the plays. He's going for it with his gut. But if he's not picking the plays. To go along with his gut move. Then what is he really doing here? Hugh Jackson's in a place where he's getting cut off at the knees. By this organizational structure. And you can't say as though you're surprised by it right? I mean I'm pretty sure I'm one of the only people saying something like this. But I look at this situation. And this is what I see. I see the organization being jumbled again and making some of the same types of mistakes that it's made in the past. And lately, I've been thinking a lot about John Dorsey. I personally believe that John Dorsey belongs in the ring of honor and needs to have a 70-foot statue outside of Ohio Edison Stadium. 
because he had the wherewithal to select Baker Mayfield with the first pick of the draft. I mean, for that alone, dude should be immortalized in time immemorial. This dude should be respected forever. I really appreciate what John Dorsey has done for this organization, what he's brought to the city of Cleveland. But as much as I love John Dorsey, much as I care that he was able to get the right thing done with respect to the quarterback position, in my soul and in my heart, I'm deeply, deeply, deeply upset for what happened uh, to Josh Gordon. And the fact that John Dorsey unceremoniously dismissed him to the New England Patriots of all team for the meager compensation of a fifth round pick. This is a deeply depressing topic for me. I mean, I love that guy. I did a special about that dude. I've always, 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 always loved Josh Gordon. There's not any person I want to watch with the ball in his hands more than Josh Gordon. And, you know, about all the off the field stuff. I mean, I just, I don't, I don't, I don't care. I mean, I care to the extent that it affects him as a person, but I'm just way likely less just way less likely to read information about someone in the media and feel like I understand a person's true motivation. I don't really pretend to understand Josh Gordon. I mean, I got, I got an idea when I see what I'm looking at, but most people that were talking about him end up doing the kind of judgment that Charles Barkley does. And it's not good journalism. Simply put, it's a deep problem of conflation. Essentially, they're listening to the problems or hearing the key words of drug abuse and drug issues coming up and they're conflating the problems that they had with those issues and just putting them randomly and actually recklessly sometimes on Josh Gordon in the case of Charles Barkley. Like I said, for me, it's a deep problem of conflation. Just reading the comments of my fellow Browns fans, I mean... On the threads, on the daily dog chow, I ended up getting disappointed. And you know what? In some ways, I like I don't want to come off too like I don't know too like I care too much about. In some ways, like I feel bad because like maybe they feel the same way about me. Disappointment as they read my opinion or my takes. But for me, in some ways, some of the things that I've been reading on the threads with respect to Josh Gordon gave me a hard time. And my it's my personal feeling. It's my dude. That's my dude. But at the same time, it was rough for me. And before I kind of get into this topic, I wanted to say at first, the posters on the Daily Dog Chow are the thing that attracts me the most to this site. This is such an incredible lot of people that is that is daily comes to the site and commits and commits to banter back and forth on whatever issue of the day, funny, off topic, on topic, whatever. Even though on this issue, I walked away pretty frustrated. I really appreciate hearing opinions uh, that vary from mine, especially when these opinions are passionate and heartfelt and the ideas are very well expressed. And in this case, I I definitely feel like all the the stuff that I'm talking about, even the ones that I'm even going to point out now, like I feel like it's a nice, well, well... passionate opinion but I just disagree with it so vociferously 
Champion uh, 1964 started off on, uh, what was it, the, the 23rd of October, referencing an article on Pat's pulpit, which dissed the Browns front office for making the move, trading Josh Gordon. They're basically saying that it was yeah, awful compensation for in it. Okay, I'm not going to get into that part yet. But anyways, at the end of his post, he kind of insinuated that Josh Gordon abused the system while he was here. Okay, I'm not sure that that's true, or I'm not even sure what it actually implies when he's suggesting someone's abusing the system. But before I can even unpack this, I read the quote from Duke 301, and a little later down in the thread, this post got 28 wrecks, which I interpret as having a fairly passionate support from a lot of members on the site. I'm going to read it to you in its entirety because in it, I think it crystallizes the sense that I'm had the frustration that I have with so many of the people on the site. And maybe there's an issue at the heart of this that we might be able to tease out by, by looking at it closely and just seeing what it is. Here's his post. Since the Browns traded Gordon, I've gotten the sense that he didn't want to be here. And that's really crappy on his part the Browns stuck by him for years until he got his junk together and that's across several different front offices which makes the fact that all it makes that fact all the more incredible and this is where I think Duke starts to I don't know, he goes here off he goes on to say and he repaid them with his utter belligerence he obviously isn't that way with New England because if he was, Old Bill would have dropped him by now. And, you know, I guess the problem I have with the take like this is twofold. Right? I never got the sense that Josh didn't want to be here or they would act like a jerk to get traded. I mean, maybe he did. I don't know. I can't tell from the reports that I read. To me, it's definitely ambiguous, but like utter belligerence? How is shooting a video on your free time utter belligerence? I mean, maybe you wish he would have done it at a different time. But I don't think that he intentionally hurt himself. I mean, my guess is he probably needs money and he took on this project as a way to recoup some of the money that's lost over the years. And some people have actually talked a little bit about this too and I've talked about it as well. Some of the child support issues that he had in his life. And I mean, they get you on the hook for quite a bit in this situation. And I'm not saying whether it's correct or incorrect. All I'm saying is he's going to have to pay a lot of money for his child support issues. In addition to the whatever loans or whatever he had to keep himself in order as he was getting back to football condition. He probably needs some money. And anybody who suggested that he do this on the Friday before they were going to New Orleans gave him some pretty bad advice. And essentially, he needs to be more about football and less about whatever it was he was thinking about. In some ways, for that part, I think this is why he ends up getting traded to New England because specifically, the team didn't want him 
to be able to get over someplace else in the same way that he got over on them. Maybe they felt like in New England, they would put him out of the league for good for what he did. I don't really know what it is. I actually don't know. And in some ways, it just bugs me a bit because people don't really know what's happening, but they already have a really strong opinion as if they did. And they would say things like utter belligerence with like, I would barely use this term unless it's something that I don't know what I would use to describe something as utterly belligerent. When someone clearly intentionally and purposefully goes after you, just trying to start something for nothing, you know, utter belligerence. Like, I don't really know. Maybe he is utterly belligerent. Maybe that's maybe that's right. But to me, that seems awfully strong, awfully emotional for this situation. Like I was saying before, the problem that I have is twofold for this kind of a thing. On one level, it's sad because in one way, it's sad because of that kind of conflation. But in another way, it's also sad because this organization is not an organization that can do something that would keep a guy like this as a productive member of the team. I mean, you want to move on, I guess. I get it. Whatever. I disagree strongly. I disagree strongly for a couple of reasons. I disagree because you got to keep people off your $15 million investment in Jarvis Landry. And at the time when you moved on from him, you had a middling quarterback who was struggling even with Josh Gordon. And you were like, hey, we're not going to keep this guy. Let's be done. Let's be done. Let's be done. And I'm not going to argue. The decision like this to move on in this manner that is done is perhaps the worst thing that I could imagine. Because you know that you're rooting for an organization that's not about the right things, in my opinion. This is one of the clear signs about it. When you start to run your talented players. In this case, this is in a completely voluntary situation. As if maybe it was somebody's gut decision. You know, Callaway might get the mulligan because he has puppy dog eyes. But my gut tells me I had enough of Josh Gordon. And for me, this is a terrible choice. And I said it before. It's one of those choices that'll keep getting worse, like a lot worse. And to me, like all those Carson Wentz takes and Deshaun Watson takes, I don't know. I would have never felt like they would be in the same spot here in Cleveland. And it looks like this league is kind of catching up to them. But with Josh Gordon, every time that dude puts up a touchdown or gets a shirt sent to the Hall of Fame or whatever... It's just going to chafe me. It's going to bug me every single time. And I, I don't understand how it doesn't bug everybody like that. This move is a lot like Khalil Mack, except without the ridiculous compensation or the non-communication or coercive tactics. It's basically a move that's worse than what John Gruden was forced into. And it sucks because I know, I know that I don't know how I can get over it it's so hard seeing him getting passes from Tom Brady I mean Tom Brady I need a minute to get myself together I'm sorry guys hold on 
Man, I promise I get to the top five uh, players on Browns offense and defense. And this is a Steelers week after all. I should be talking about some more football, right? Well, there's no question the top player is on the Browns defense. It's Miles Garrett, and we heard from him at the opening of the show. And there's also very little question about the player who's sitting at number two on our top five rankings of the Browns defense. It's a player who needs no introduction. When he's guarding you, it feels like slow-mo. You think you're gonna get in with the sluggo. But he for sure gonna keep you out the end zone. And he'll look even better in your photo. Chivo's got the coverage in disguise. You think you're free but locked up on that island. And if the ball is tipped by a D-lineman, he'll take you to the house and walk inside it. His name is Vigil, it's his time to shine when he's in Brisbane, oh, he's off the line. He'll let you look just like a warden in your seat, like a brain drain for TV, like a brain drain for TV. Just don't try, no, just don't try. Check it down, I say. Live in another place. Try your luck on the other side. That's how you lose control. That's how you lose. When he's in Brickman, oh, he's off the line. He'll let you work just like a warden and then you'll be like a brain drain for TV. Like a brain drain for TV, yeah. His name is Dizzle, this is Dizzle. When he's in Brickman, oh, he's off the line. He'll let you work just like a warden and then you'll be like a brain drain for TV. Like a brain drain for TV, yeah. Checking in at three is a surprise entry as Emmanuel Ogba jumps out of nowhere to make his presence felt on the Browns defense. And at four, an oldie but goodie, Kirko solidifying the middle linebacker position in Joe Schobert's absence. At number five and number six, it's a tie. I actually think number five is Larry Uglinjoe because how can he not be in the top five? But at the same time, how can you not praise Demarius Randall for the work that he did in the Brown secondary last week in Tampa Bay? On offense, it's a little bit more simple than all that. On offense, you know who it is. And I just wanted to say that I think with all the play calling talk that we had a little bit earlier, what's been going on, some of the different media outlets, the one who I think needs more control in this offense is Baker Mayfield. 
if you just think about the opportunity that Deshaun Kaiser had last year for this football team, if Baker Mayfield had the same chances, do you imagine the possibilities that he will be able to accomplish? I mean, you know, minus the complete and total lack of proven playmaker thing. I mean, for me, it's not so much about play calling as it is about play execution and the execution made more likely by a general who starts to understand the entire battlefield. That is Baker Mayfield to me. Number two, there's no surprise. It's Jarvis Landry making an incredible touchdown catch, extending the ball over the line of the last second. Number three is a surprise entry on the offense as well. It's Zeitler, who has been really not present on this list, kind of fitting in as part of the offensive line um, kind of recognition that we've been doing by including uh, Joel Batoni on the list. But for me, this game, Zeitler really stuck out. And he's been really solid all year. Stayed away from making big penalties and... Philly, he's been a really good asset in the run game and had a pretty decent passing grade as well. Zeitler is our offensive line representative at spot number three for the offense. And number four, Nick Chubb, who we talked about much earlier. And lastly, on the top five list, a guy who makes a surprising return after quite a bit of time being away from this list with us David Njoku checks in at number 5 making a tremendous touchdown catch in my opinion so much of the red zone issues could be eliminated by Baker Mayfield putting one of those passes up to David Njoku in the corner of the end zone I felt like Njoku has a real chance to make a resurgence the second half of this year as Baker becomes more comfortable with some of the pieces and parts in this offense. Well, to close things up, it's Steelers week. And I know I'm probably going to be disappointed, but I'm going to close this show with a song. And it's like Coach said, some way, somehow, we got to keep fighting. And I say Cleveland gets it done. I'm not betting any money on it. You know, everything looks wrong for this game. It really does. Steelers coming off the bye week. You know, so much shouldn't be right here, but here we are. I think that Baker Mayfield is going to be the man. And if we stick it to the Steelers fan to the tunes of 29 to 28 on some crazy pull out all the stops kind of effort when Nick Chubb starts to show who he really is. You've been listening to Straight No Chaser with my dad, Lelonia Severin, on DVN Network. Hey everybody, it's Neil Patel, Editor-in-Chief of The Verge. I host a podcast every week called The Verge Cast with my friends Paul Miller and Dieter Bone. We've got a rotating cast of characters from our entire site, which is about technology, how it impacts culture, and how that is all a big cycle that causes us to have a wide variety of feelings that you can listen to every Friday. We've done over 300 episodes in the six years since The Verge has been around, but you only need to listen to one, the latest one, to get caught up on everything in tech news. Vergecast is on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere else. Also, you listen to podcasts, check it out.